0: Well, praise the Lord, and welcome to uh, our second session in this uh, series. Uh, tonight's uh, lesson is going to be entitled, Unity and Community. Now, we've talked about how Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That was His, I like to call it His job description. He's the enemy of the devil, and He's a friend to everyone else. He um, doesn't war, though. like in the methods that the world does. We shouldn't either. But that we should do our battling with spiritual weapons. And in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, shares with us, and it shows us that our weapons are not carnal. They're not of the world. They're not of the flesh. But they are mighty. And through God, to the pulling down of strongholds. Now, strongholds are things in our minds, basically. They're things that we believe Are true that aren't we believe they're true or we wouldn't believe them but we're trusting in things that are not true and God reveals to us these things that we trust in and in time more and more of them are revealed to us we may struggle with changing our minds. some people never want to change they in other words when it's explained to them that they need the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved they struggle with that that's a stronghold but when it when they make the decision to receive the Lord Jesus into their heart, something has changed because they have exchanged what they believed to be truth before that for the truth and immediately received the results of a battle won. Strongholds are in our mind, but they're manifested in the world through the things that we do. Strongholds in the minds of people manifest themselves in everything from the architecture to the laws of the land, to uh, the songs we sing, to the to the the art on the walls, to the books we read, they contain the results of the strongholds that people carry, the beliefs that people carry. We, on the other hand, know that it's by the renewing of our mind that we have the key to transformation. So the battleground, basically, is between our ears. The spirit and the flesh are going to always come into battle with one another. And the battleground is the soul. I like to say it's between our ears, because our mind is the manifestation of our soul. And as we pull down these strongholds, as we are revealed the truth, we may have to struggle, we may have to battle, we may have to take authority over former beliefs that try to reestablish themselves through our old man nature. But that's how we battle. Our weapons are not carnal. We need to battle in this battleground with spiritual weapons. And as we use these mighty weapons, we cast down every imagination, every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and we bring into captivity every one of those thoughts into the obedience of Christ. If we'll do that, we are going to manifest victory. Now, as we do this, we're going to be in a process of becoming a disciple, discipleship may be called a process of growing into and up in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. When Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.1, he said, Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He told him to be strong in another place, to grow in grace. And discipleship is basically the process of growing up into the grace that is in Jesus Christ. We walk in victory as much as we are in walking in the grace that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. If We remove ourselves from grace, we can come back by God's mercy, but we will not be walking in victory unless we're walking in His grace. Wherever we can be in His grace and manifest His grace, we're going to be manifesting the power of God In this world, and it will be manifested, the power of God will be manifested in our lives. So as we're disciplining ourselves to the teachings of the Lord Jesus and being obedient to the things that he has taught, we are becoming disciples. As we are becoming disciples, we're growing in strength in his grace. Now, we don't war like the world does. The weapons of our warfare are not of this world but they're mighty through God. They're spiritual. And forgiveness is one of our weapons, even as joy is a weapon, even as repentance is a weapon. The devil is defeated when people repent and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. They become overcomers over the over the enemy and his plans to send them to eternity in hell. So repentance is a weapon. But forgiveness is a weapon that's a requirement for discipleship. And I'd like you to look in Matthew, chapter 18, beginning in verse 18. And Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And again I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by My Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in My name, I am there in the midst of them. I am there in the midst of them. Now, you don't use the word midst normally when there's just two. So even if there's just two, there can be agreement. But he says in the midst because he's there. Because even if there's just two of us with Jesus, that makes three. So two or three plus Jesus is always, he can be there. But it's in his name. In other words, in his will, just coming together and saying his name It's not sorcery, it's not witchcraft, that we have these specific words that we can say that always bring about certain results, like chance, like vain repetitions, like magic. But rather, we come in His name. In other words, we have authority in His name, but the authority comes, one, by agreement, with one another, but it has to be in agreement with Him, and that's why we need to know His Word and His will. Because if we come into agreement with one another on something, but it's not in agreement with God's will, it can still happen by the power of the soul. But that can be empowered by the wrong source. However, if we come into agreement with one another and with Him, that's in His name. And it will be done, he says. He'll be there in the midst. If they ask anything, it will be done for them. doesn't have to be necessarily done by them. It will be done for them. Praise the Lord. There will be no answer to prayer without agreement. There will be no relationship without offense. And there will be no authority without forgiveness. We have to have agreement. If we're going to work with one another there's going to be times when there's going to be offense because our soul gets offended, our flesh gets offended. At times, even our spirit gets offended. If our spirit gets offended, we have a responsibility to take take action. When Jesus said to Peter, you're an offense to me, it was offensive to him, not in his soul, not in his body, but in his spirit. And so he had to rebuke where Peter was wrong. But what that did was it brought them into a place where, through Peter's repentance, they could come back into agreement. For Jesus to have come down from his place of obedience, just to have uh, agreement with Peter would have been foolish. Because the goal is not only agreement, but agreement with one another and with God. Well, there's going to be offense, and that's why we need forgiveness because we won't walk in God's authority unless we understand forgiveness and how to utilize that consistently, daily, every chance. Jesus said, if your brother offends you, if he sins, even if seven times a day, if he comes back, forgive him. Consistently forgive him. Come back into agreement on the Word of God with that person. When you have agreement, Jesus can be there. If He's willing to come, You should be willing to forgive and be there too. With agreement, the answers to prayer can come. Through forgiveness, we can come back to that place of agreement again and see the power of God manifested. Well, there's a parable that follows here, beginning in verse 23. It's a parable of the forgiven king and how he forgave a servant who owed a great debt to him. But then that servant turned around. He had another fellow servant who owed him, was in debt to him at a much smaller amount. And yet he didn't take the example of the king who had forgiven him of much, but rather he grabbed that other servant and threatened him, had him thrown in the prison. But when the word got back to the king, the king said, You wicked servant, I forgave you of everything. He said, So now I'm going to put you in prison And you're going to be tormented until you pay back everything. There's a gospel that we preach. And Jesus said, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the world before the end will come. The gospel is the news that the kingdom is presently available. And discipleship is the quest to be good citizens in that kingdom. So when Jesus teaches through his parables, he's trying to teach us how to be functioning and blessed citizens in that kingdom even while we're on this earth. Well, in that parable, in verse 34, the master was angry and he had that wicked servant turned over to the torturers, to the tormentors until he would pay back all that was due him. But in verse 35, he brings this parable into spiritual understanding when he says, so my heavenly father will also do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. What is he trying to teach us? Well, obviously, he's very serious about teaching us forgiveness. He began this parable because back in verse 22, uh, he had to teach Peter that you you should forgive your brother even 70 times, seven times. In other words, always forgive. What does he mean that if we after having already been forgiven, because we are like that wicked servant, okay? We owe God more than we could ever pay Him back. We deserve judgment, just like that servant deserved judgment. But because we repented, like that servant did, God forgave us our debt. We understand that. When we received Jesus, He forgave our debt. However, remember in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's a process. Now, that can't be talking about for salvation because when we confess Jesus as Lord, we're saved, everything is forgiven. So in light of our salvation, eternal life, all our debt has been paid by Jesus. But what does it mean here? That if we don't forgive, our Father in heaven won't, won't forgive us. He's talking about in our walk, in our life now. In order to manifest the kingdom of God, to live under the rules of the kingdom of God now, then we need to submit to those rules even as we're in the earth. The earth says, well, why would you forgive him? Look what he did to you. But there's a higher order. And if we choose to walk in that higher order, then we need to follow the rules of the king, not the rules of the world, not the rules of this world. So when we receive Jesus as our Lord, We were were going to a higher order, to a higher kingdom. We received salvation from that kingdom. Now, as we want to walk in the light of that kingdom and in the power of that kingdom, under the rules of that kingdom, which are supernatural and mighty through God, then we need to do what He says to do. Remember the Great Commission, to teach them to follow and obey everything that I've taught. So when we don't forgive our brother, we're turned over to the tormentors. Now the tormentors is representation of the devil in his kingdom. In other words, it's not that God doesn't want to forgive us. It's not that forgiveness is not available for us daily in the name of the Lord Jesus. It is. We have remission of sins when we confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. And then from that point on, we have available forgiveness of sins. When we sin, when we fall, we can always come to that throne of grace humbly and yet boldly to receive grace through mercy. However, we stop our ability to receive the blessing if we choose not to forgive others. In terms of our walk, in terms of our life that we live, if we refuse to forgive those that trespass against us, that opens up a door of authority to the kingdom of this world to torment us, to frustrate the promises of God in our lives. That's why it's important for us to learn forgiveness right from the start, that we take time to forgive every person. Now, as we come into the things of God, it's important that we even understand to forgive people who have wronged us in the past. Many times that has imparted things to us. Many times there are things hanging on that we don't even realize from the past. Uh, Often it can even be someone that you don't even know anymore or have any relationship anymore with. Uh, Could perhaps be a family member, a parent that maybe you have hurt or bitterness from, a spouse, a, a sibling, someone that was close to you that maybe hurt you, that you've been holding something against them possibly even before you were saved. It's important that you forgive them. They may even be dead. It's not hurting them a bit if you haven't forgiven them but it's holding you back from walking in the power of the kingdom while you're in this world. Because this man, it says, because he wouldn't forgive, therefore he was tormented. And Jesus said, My heavenly Father also will do this to you if you don't forgive your brother the trespass. In other words, you can never pay your debt, so we shouldn't expect them to pay for whatever they did. And that offense will grow. It won't hurt them, but it will hurt us. So when we forgive, it lifts that burden from us. It lets us walk lightly now in this world, without the burdens of this world. As disciples, it's important that right at the beginning we learn to forgive. It's an art, and yet it's a powerful weapon that we have. It pulls down strongholds that the enemy uses, that he builds up, so he can get into our lives. Well, as spiritual sons of the Lord Jesus Christ, we set aside privilege of eternal life to learn citizenship as a servant. As we become a steward, we are in a position for adoption by the Father. Now, this is a process. We are sons. We have the seed of Christ in us. He, it says in Isaiah, is the father of eternity. There are certain privileges that come with sonship. And we need to know what our sonship rights are. There are certain rights that come with sonship. But there's also responsibility that comes as we grow in authority. And so there's times when we set aside the privilege of eternal life so that we can begin to walk as a servant. We set aside those privileges in order to learn how to walk as a citizen. We're born into it, the kingdom. We have the authority and the rights of a citizen, but we need to learn how to utilize those rights. There are rewards that come for doing that. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes interest, perseverance, takes desire. John 13, 35 says, By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus said, Everyone will know that you're my disciples. Not that you are a disciple, but that you are, you people are my disciples, plural, that you have love one towards another. In other words, as a disciple, I need to love. That includes forgiving. I have got to learn how to do that. It's my responsibility to do for God what His Word says for me to do. It's not my responsibility to force someone else. It's my responsibility to control my thinking. On the other hand, though, Jesus said, They'll know you are disciples when you're doing this to one another. In other words, when I'm walking in love towards you, I am learning how to be a disciple. However, when you begin to walk in love towards me, and we do that towards one another, others begin to notice. Because there's two or more now, and he is in the midst. Because together, we begin to manifest something that we cannot do singularly. One just can't do what two or more can do. To love with the love of God, is to love freely. To love without expecting anything in return. We need to do that. As a disciple, I am learning the process of how to love without expecting anything in return. To give freely. For God so loved the world that He freely gave His Son. He freely gave to the world who had nothing that He needed. We imitate that. We freely give. As we grow in discipleship, we learn to give. When someone trespasses against us, we forgive. That's, that is giving, okay? Forgiving is a type of giving. However, when I give and yet someone freely gives back, that's a blessing. And then people begin to see, as Jesus said, you are disciples, I can't force you to freely give, because if I forced you, it wouldn't be free. (laughs) I can take care of my own self to make sure I freely give. On the other hand, if we teach about discipleship, others are going to want to freely give. And when we begin to freely give to those that are freely giving, then all of a sudden people begin to notice that something is different there. Something is different. There's reciprocity of free giving. (laughs) Praise God. Love does not require reciprocity, but unity demands it. As we grow as disciples, we begin to come into agreement, which is unity. We have to give freely, not expecting anything back. However, if we're with others that are also giving without expecting back, we begin to come into unity. Unity requires that reciprocity. And yet, because it's through the love of God, which does not require reciprocity, by that paradox, we enter into a higher realm, a supernatural realm. It takes us out of this world and takes us into the authority of another kingdom. The symbol of a believer at the basic level of Christianity is communion. The symbol of a disciple is freely giving And freely receiving. Now, there are four basic aspects of a disciplined Christian walk, and these four aspects, I think we need to be aware of, and everyone needs to take note of, really on a daily basis. These are four aspects that we should have predominantly operating in our lives daily. Number one is fellowship. We have unity, and we have community. There are levels of fellowship. We can come in agreement with one another. We can have that unity there. But then there's also community. We have relationships. We have our company. We have those people that we're joined with in a greater sense, in a larger sense. So there's unity and community. Fellowship is the word koinonia, which is the word communion. We have to have that with God as well as with His children that are also believers and disciples. We have to have giving and receiving operating and functioning in our lives. Always keeping God first. There are many men in this world known as philanthropists that give to great causes, that give to man. Phileo, meaning the kind of love that's brotherly love, okay, towards men. Philanthropist. That's good. But it doesn't do anything if we haven't first given to God. God first, then others. I'm willing to be third. In our lives, we have to have the basics of giving and the understanding that we work to have to give where there's a need. Daily, this has got to be disciplined into our lives. And then the Word, the Word of God, both the written and the spoken. Neither can be neglected. We need to study it, and we need to rightly apply it. Daily, the Word must be in our lives. We hide it in our hearts. We speak it on our lips. We keep it in our minds. And then, fourthly, prayer. I like to call it thanks living, that we continually have a lifestyle of thanksgiving and prayer, that we're praying in the Spirit, that we're praying with our understanding, that we're praying in season, out of season, praying for others, praying for ourselves, praying to God, praising God. It's a, it's a habit pattern and a daily occurrence that we have disciplined our lives to grow into a lifestyle of prayer. Seek and ye shall find. Right? Ask the, and it shall be given unto you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be open. Ask. Hebrews 1.7 says, says that He makes His ministers a flame of fire. And in thinking of that, that he's He builds a fire in us. In light of a natural fire, when we build a fire, and we want to keep a fire going, there's three elements that are necessary in order to have a flame. We need to have heat, some form of heat. We need to have fuel, and we need to have oxygen. Now, in our lives also, I like to say there's these categories that we need to have these mixtures in our lives in order to keep the fire of God going in our lives and basically the mixture that we use in these categories of heat flame and air oxygen are made up of these things that we've just looked at and I like to put them in these in this way because it's a good way for us to test in our lives if there's something's missing if our fire seems to be going down why is it is there not enough fuel is the heat not there, or is it just need a little bit more air? Because you can throw more fuel on a fire that doesn't have enough oxygen, and you'll just have a pile of logs pretty soon. On the other hand, if you have a big wind come through, and there's not enough uh, fuel there for that size of a fire, that wind could actually blow it out. Or you could have the greatest pile of wood, and you could have all the air, but if there's not enough heat, then there's not going to be a flame. So, I say that the heat comes from the love for God and for others. So love is the heat that we have. It's fruit and relationships and all that is included in relationships, including fellowship and giving, honor to whom honor is due, according to the directives of the Lord. If you feel cool on these things, check your first love, and then check your relationships. Secondly, The fuel is the Word of God. Study and rightly apply the Scriptures. Discipline, learning, and living. You cannot give what you don't have. Receive with meekness the implanted Word. Daily devotions. Receive it. Put it on. Put it within you. If things do not seem to be flowing or going, check the Word and your application of the Word. And thirdly, the oxygen, the air. It's accessed through prayer, worship, and fellowship with the Spirit. The Spirit means breath. The Spirit brings refreshing and breaks every yoke. If there's an oppression or a spiritual hindrance, check the area of Spirit. Is there a Spirit hindering or a neglect of the Spirit which is hindering? Ministry to the Lord will many times bring release bring air, bring oxygen, refreshing. So check these places. Now, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we read that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable to us for doctrine, for reproof, and for correction, for instruction, or which is instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, Thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, we've looked at this verse thoroughly in the past, so we're not going to look at it in detail again. But the man of God should be complete. He needs to be perfected. He needs to have all that's needed in order to accomplish what he's called to accomplish in this life. That's what discipleship is about, is becoming complete in Christ. Growing up in Him. Now, in 2 Timothy 2.15, it says to be diligent, to present yourself approved to God, a worker that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, one thing a disciple is that not every believer may be, and that is a worker. A disciple is one that puts effort into his Christianity. He doesn't just receive from the Lord and then just say, that's enough. He says, I've received from the Lord, now I want to work out my salvation. I want to manifest in this life what I've seen through Scripture and what I believe the Lord would have me to do. So there's effort involved in discipleship. And in this verse, it says to be diligent. This is the Greek word spudadzo. It's also translated to study, to show yourself approved, to be diligent. It means to take into consideration the effort that's needed to bring about a particular result and to also consider the time that's needed. So, as we are diligent to study, to present ourselves approved unto God, we need to be workers. We're not ashamed to show ourselves approved unto God. We're not ashamed to divide the Word correctly, to rightly divide it, so we understand what God is saying to us, not what man would say. We want to have the fear of God, not the fear of man. To be ashamed of what God is saying is to have the fear of man. Now, a disciple desires to have approval of God. The approval of men may come and may go. Men may be sincere, but there's no guarantee that they're going to be right. Sincerity is no guarantee for truth. Truth is a guarantee of itself. Whether we believe truth or not, it's still truth. If we believe truth, we'll have the results in our lives that we desire, which come from heaven. If we will study to show ourselves approved, if we'll be diligent to show ourselves approved unto God as workers, we will not be ashamed. Matter of fact, we're going to be blessed in all that we do. Now, this word approved is very interesting. We need to look at it. Because we want to be approved of God. Now, as we're approved of God, many times we do receive favor of men, grace, approval of men. If they're godly, if they see the Spirit of God in us, and that's what they're looking for, many times favor will come from men. That's, that's a blessing. Joseph in Egypt received favor of Pharaoh, but it was because he first had received favor of God. When Pharaoh said, Is there anyone in whom the Spirit of God dwells like this man? The reason he saw the Spirit of God was because Joseph had worked diligent to be approved of God, to stay obedient to the things of God. He had already received his approval of the Father. And it put him in a position where when it was time, it was noticed by someone in authority who then brought him out of his earthly travail and placed him in a place of earthly authority also. But that happened through obedience to God, all earthly authority is going to go away. However, if we receive that authority because of heavenly authority, then we have eternal rewards. If we want the rewards that are eternal, then we must run the race according to God's rules. So we want our approval to be of God and not of men. Now, the word for approval is the word docomos, and it means to be acceptable. It means to be tried Tested, proved, and approved. It means that we have been tested and we've passed the test. Some examples in Romans chapter 14, 17, and 18. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. So, We serve Christ, and if we will serve Him, we're going to be acceptable to God and we're going to be approved. We're going to be tested. Many non believers look at Christianity and have not as much respect for Christianity as they ought to. And it's because we have not shown ourselves approved before God and acceptable before God. We've cut corners. I'm speaking as a a group. We've said, oh, it's by grace. And we've made excuses to take us out of liberty into licentiousness, let's say. We've accepted status quo and accepted a certain amount of sin rather than to be pressing onward to approval of God. So therefore, men have said, I don't see Christ in them. However, if we press in and we are acceptable before God, there will be approval. People will say, yes, they live it. I've seen it in them. In James chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved, when he has been tried, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So we understand that our job that we're growing in here as disciples is to be approved of God. We're diligent with the Word of God, showing ourselves approved, To God, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, we're learning in these nets courses how to rightly divide the Logos word. In other words, we need to understand certain principles of how to rightly divide the Scripture. We're we're learning about utilizing the words in their context, utilizing the verses in their greater context. We're understanding about Scripture buildup, Scriptural progression. We're understanding about using words in light of their original meaning. But we need to understand approval before God only begins with rightly dividing the Scripture, the logos. In other words, we need to get our I's dotted and our T's crossed, so to speak. Every jot and every tittle is important. And there's really nothing greater than to sit down with the Scripture and have it opened up to you in a way that you've never seen by the Holy Spirit. What a blessing, whether it's directly or through the Spirit in someone. When, that, when the Scripture opens, it's like the light came on. What a blessing. But that's only the beginning of what it is to be approved of God. Because like it says here in James, when we have endured temptation, then we're approved of God. In other words, to know the Word of God is important, but to live it is the other half of being approved before God. To just know it, but not to live it, does not get you approval in God's kingdom. To know it, but not to live it, will only feed a religious spirit. The Pharisee spirit will be very happy with that. To just know what it says, and to have some tremendous insight, or some tremendous argument that that you can always bring up, that uh, (laughs) no one can seem to beat that argument. But the Pharisees could do that. A religious spirit can do that. But true discipleship is to understand what does it say, and then how do I live it? You see, Joseph, again, as an example, when Potiphar's wife tempted him and tried to get him to lie with her, first to seduce him, but then she put pressure on him too, because he was a slave. And yet he knew the word of God. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, it just so happens that he knew that about 400 years before it was written because it hadn't been given to Moses yet. And yet he knew it in his heart that it was wrong. So he knew the word. He rightly divided that. Remember, the word can cut between joint and marrow, the thoughts and intents of our heart. So his heart knew what was right. He didn't give in to the pleasure or the pressure. He rightly really divided it in his heart. He knew what was right. But then he rightly really divided it in action. Even though it cost him something, he was approved of God. Even as he was thrown into prison, he was approved of God. Do you think that Potiphar would have cut off any other servant's head that was accused of that? Probably. There's other things that are not in Scripture as to why that didn't happen. But there was favor, even as judgment came from the evil woman He was still received favor because he was put in prison, not on the gallows or the chopping block, you see. And in time, he became stronger because he remained humble. In prison, he continued to rightly divide the word. He continued to be approved of God, which then gave him approval before men. And eventually, that approval brought him before the king. So we need to rightly divide the logos, the written word. But the end result of rightly dividing the written word is to have it rightly divided, rightly applied in our lives. Now, unity in the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we... Though many are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Now, he's speaking to the church about the symbol of communion, the Lord's table, the bread and the wine that we take in remembrance of him, a symbol and a representation, a tradition, if you will, that Jesus himself handed down to us. But it's bigger than the bread and the wine that we receive in remembrance of Him. See, it's a a remembrance. It's a symbol that we will do until He comes. However, we are the bread. We are the body. We are the body of Christ. He's the bread of life. Since we are now the body of Christ, we are also the bread of life. So the bread and the wine which we hold is a symbol of the body of Christ, which was broken, but is now one in Him. So as we come into the kingdom by new birth, we become one bread, one with another. This is why the Bible can say we're one body, so when one hurts, we all hurt. So to understand the basic spirit of unity that is in the body of Christ, it's that one bread. That's why communion is a representation of believers. That level of being a believer, someone that has confessed Jesus as Lord, is represented by this bread and this wine. We are the bread. He has made us the bread. Now, that's unity in the Spirit. Communion is fellowship, koinonia. We have fellowship with Him, and we have fellowship one with another. It's impossible for us to have fellowship with one another if we don't have fellowship with Him. It's also impossible to have fellowship with Him if we refuse to have fellowship one with another, because we are one bread, and He is the bread of life. We are His body. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, "It's good." And it's pleasant for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's in that place. It's like the oil flowing down on Aaron's beard and on his head. And it's in that place of unity and agreement that there are commanded to be blessings and life forevermore. It's the eternal blessings, the blessings of eternal life that we desire, the blessings that come through the kingdom of God, that come through unity and agreement. When the brethren come together, not just in a gathering, but actually in unity. When we come together in agreement, He's there. It's like that oil that was poured out on Aaron. When that oil was poured out on Aaron, He was commissioned. That was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 30, it says that one can chase a thousand, but two can chase 10,000. It's not that when we come together in agreement that our abilities are added to. That would be an understatement. When we come together in unity, our ability to accomplish things is multiplied. It's multiplied. That's what God is after. As we come together and live like what He has already made us, we are one bread. So when we live like that, then we get the results that come from unity. The multiplied power that Jesus walked in came because He was the bread of life. Now we are in Christ. So when we walk in Christ, that is manifested. That power by the law of the Spirit. You see, a corporate anointing multiplies the results through agreement. Now Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 26. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more, as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If we sin willfully, remember this is written to the Hebrews, these Hebrews were running back and buying lambs, and turtle doves, and other sacrifices, They'd received Jesus, but being Hebrews, they were falling back onto the Old Covenant when they sinned after they received Jesus. And they were going and buying animals and then taking them to the temple and having those sacrifices pay for their sins. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, there is no longer a sacrifice. Jesus' blood was enough for your sins in the past, and it's enough for your sins from now on. No longer do you go and buy a lamb and then have it sacrificed and then go on about your way still not forgiving your brother and your sister. But now you go to the Lord, ask him to forgive you. You forgive your brothers and sisters and that sacrifice that he made on the cross is enough. Now don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. But why do we want to come together? Just for religious reasons? Just because we all have the same belief? No, the purpose, it says, is to consider one another. When we come together, our first thought should be, what can I do for someone else? Now, that's a higher order than just coming for your own need. Obviously, if we have a need, we want to be able to come to the brethren and have the Spirit of God in our brothers and sisters manifested to us, have that ministry of the Holy Spirit through them. But our goal is to come to have our needs handled so that we are able to give where there's a need. So that we can give to one another. Our goal would be to consider one another and stir up love and good works among us. It's so much easier to love if you're being loved. Now we have a requirement to love even if we're not. But how much better if it is a discipleship thing and it's love towards one another. We need... Good works. But how much easier it is to do if we're in agreement? One can chase a 1,000, two can chase 10,000. If we've got work to do, it's 10 times as easy if we've got two or more doing it. Amen? So when we come together with that mindset, the Spirit of God is there. So much more can be accomplished. Again, a corporate anointing multiplies the results through agreement. Now, we are the bread of life. When we realize that, then we would never do anything against another part of the body because we're doing something against our own selves. But we're being built into a building, a habitation. In Ephesians 2.22 it says, We're being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, we are one bread. We have one Spirit. If we begin to understand that and actually act like we believe that, It takes effort to believe that when we speak against a brother, we're actually hurting ourselves, because immediately we don't see the results of hurt towards ourselves. But if we discipline ourselves to believe that the Word of God is true, and it says we're hurting ourselves, we will discipline ourselves to guard our tongue. And we'll forgive our brothers, and we won't speak against another brother. If we do, we'll ask for forgiveness. So we stop that cycle of hurt within the body of Christ. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. We want to have that bread pure as the day was baked, I guess. (laughs) And as that happens, in the process of doing just what I said, we are being built together into a habitation. A habitation of God through the Spirit. We are one bread. We are one body. We have one Spirit. And it's that one Spirit that is building us together as we disciple our lives individually we begin to have a heart towards one another our desire is to consider one another as we consider one another we are being built together not just you being built up not just me being built up but we're being built up together and the building project magnifies itself it multiplies in terms of that project being completed Hebrews 4, 11 and 12. Let us therefore be diligent. Now this is that word again, spudazo. To enter that rest. We want to labor to enter that rest. We want to be diligent, put effort into entering that rest. Lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. As we are diligent to show ourselves approved unto God, we are diligent to enter into Him, to do all things through Him, allowing Him to manifest His desires through our efforts, through our actions. When we are diligent to do those things, we're going to be manifesting that Sabbath day rest in our life. We'll be walking in that rest, the protection of His covering. And it's because the Word of God is living, and it is powerful. It's mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. It's sharper than any sword. And even as I use the example of Joseph, where he could divide between soul and spirit. Even though he didn't have the Ten Commandments, he knew what was right. And he allowed his spirit to overpower the fears or the desires of his soul. And was a discerner of the thoughts and intents. If we can discern the thoughts and we can judge our own intents, then we can take dominion over our intents and we can bring every thought captive unto Christ. We'll be diligent before God and we'll be approved before God. And that approval will be manifested in this world. Hebrews chapter 5, 13 and 14 says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Now we need to begin as a babe. When we're born into the kingdom, we are born as a baby. Remember, we're born again. We're infants. We start there, but we shouldn't stay there. If we were a child in a natural sense and we started off with milk and we had formula in our bottle, and 30 years later, that's still what we're eating, and we're still wearing diapers, we would know there was something wrong. Actually, we would know long before 30 years that something was wrong, that this this person is not maturing like they should. Now, is there a mental problem, a spiritual problem? What is the problem? If it's just a a matter of instruction, this person has not been instructed that they shouldn't be in diapers, that they should take care of themselves, They, they can talk, they can walk. You know, if it's not been taught... We can do that. Of course, in my example, the extreme example that I use, there would probably have to be some other thing involved. Nevertheless, in Christianity, in the spirit, we have this. Men and women that have been Christians 30 years and still in diapers and still on formula, still on that baby bottle with milk. That milk is good, but there's a time to grow up. Discipleship is about growing up. It's not denying the infant stage. It's it's saying that I want to grow up. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You see, it's by use. It's by taking that sort of the Spirit and using it. It's by going out and being tested that we are approved. It's not that we look for temptation in order to go be tempted. It's that we look for temptation in order not to give in to temptation. Our desire when we go out into the world is to manifest that love of God. But yet we're in this body, this tent that's made from the flesh, the carnal body. That's where the battle goes on. And so therefore temptation comes. But by putting on the Word of God and growing up into the things of Christ drinking the milk, and then progressing on to solid food and eating the meat, we begin to walk in a power that's higher than a babe, that's stronger than a babe. So therefore, we don't give in to temptation when it comes, but we rather are overcomers. I'd like you to look at what I call the process to spiritual maturity. And it's in the parable in Luke 16. And in this parable... Jesus was speaking to His disciples, and He says, There was a rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So He called him in, and He said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be a steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig I'm ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him, and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly, which is the word wisely or prudently. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Now, I say this is the process of spiritual maturity. For the longest time, I could never understand this parable. And it really concerned me because it said he's an unjust steward. And yet the master says to him, you're commended. It even says you're commended. As an unjust steward, I couldn't understand that. But now I understand it in light of what Jesus is speaking here. We're all unjust. And we're never going to add up to perfection. Perfection is in the Lord, not in our actions. And yet we still need to have actions. We still need to walk in this world doing our best to manifest the ways of Jesus Christ. And so what this unjust steward did... He knew there was going to be a time when he was going to have to give an account. He was also wise enough to know that as good as he tried to be, he was still not going to measure up to the level of perfection that his master desired. So he looked at himself and he said, Look, I can't dig, and to beg, I'm ashamed. He set two categories of workmanship out there. And really, as Christians, we need to understand, we need to go through those two. But then there's a third level. What's that third level? He went to those other servants who owed the master. Now, you would think that, well, he's taking from these guys only a portion of what they owe their master. And you'd think that the master would be upset because he's not getting full payment back. But in reality, these servants owed more than they could pay. And so what this unjust steward did was he got something out of them rather than nothing. But there's a process that I want you to see here. First, he said, I cannot dig. Dig takes effort. Digging takes personal effort. As a Christian, when we begin to walk as a Christian, we need to learn how to dig. We have got to get out a shovel, and we've got to put some effort into our walk before the Lord. If we will put some effort into the things that we do, we're going to learn how to pray. We're going to learn how to lay hands on the sick and put some effort. We're going to learn how to walk in faith and build our faith, because those things take effort. He said, I can't dig. The reason he couldn't dig was he'd done it before, and now he's a lot older. He knew how to do it. He also knew were, that time was past. But we have to, as children of God, learn that there's a stage in our life, as we begin to grow with God, that we need to dig. We need to dig the Word. We need to dig into life. We need to get out and put some effort into the life of Christ that's in us. Then, I'm ashamed to beg. There comes a time when you've dug so much, and you've hit some gold, and you've hit some bedrock. You've gotten some good things, and you've gotten some bad things. But you get to a point that you've matured now to a stronger level of faith. You're at a higher level of faith. I want to say it again. We all need to go through that stage. The reason many Christians never walk in authority is because they're afraid to get up and get their shovels out and put some effort into their walk. But that's the first stage towards learning. But then there comes a time when we've done that enough and we've built up our spiritual muscles, so to speak, we come to a place where now we beg. We realize we can get more by begging. Now, very few beggars who refuse to work will get anything, (laughs) But let's say you've, you've, you've put your effort in and you've come to a place where you can no longer work and you need a helping hand, someone's going to help you in the natural. Well, in the spirit, we come to a place after we've labored, after we've received everything we can through our labor, we come to a place where we realize the next place we're going to go, only God can take us there. And we get on our knees and we seek the Lord and we ask and we seek and we knock and we beg Him for His anointing, and we, we ask Him for His mercy. We understand now, even more than we did before, how much of a sinner we are. We realize even now that, that if uh, even the, the righteous are barely saved. <laughs> and so we come to that place through, through an understanding of living the Word of God, that we need His mercy. And we are willing, now there's no pride anymore, we are willing to get on our faces and beg Him for His blessings. But then... Because we have dug and we've built up the muscles and we've gotten the experience and because we have become humble and we have begged and sought the Lord to receive what he will give us only because of what our need is. There comes a place where we can walk in grace and wisdom where we desire to bring out the best in one another knowing that none of our brothers and sisters really could ever pay back to the Lord what is really owed him. We could never give him back what he's given to us. But we come to a place in our life when if we want to be as this steward, prudent, wise, walking in approval, then what we're going to do is stir up others and help them to be diggers and beggars, and eventually those that equip others. It's a process of discipleship, and we need to go through all those stages. But we need to get up, and we need to go, or we won't go through any of them, but by moving with the proper designs on approval of the Father, then we will go through this process into spiritual maturity. Amen.